Hello, you're listening to Sarah McCoy, and this is the second of two Christmas editions of my podcast. I've been a Bible teacher at Owasso First Assembly in Owasso, Oklahoma for over 40 years, and I love the way God's Word shows itself practical to today, time after time. Our theme on this occasion is the symbolism of the three gifts brought to the child Jesus by the wise men. We'll begin with Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, you know, after Christmas, and so this is the after Christmas message in late December. During the time of King Herod, Magi came from the east to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. I'll tell you the rest of the story up to verse 11. You recall that Herod was one of the under kings under the Roman emperor at this time. And he was a wicked man and um, very easily threatened. And when he heard about a possible king being born, he wanted to have him destroyed. So he called in his wise men, his own local wise men, the scribes and the Pharisees, the people who knew the prophecies of the Old Testament. And he said to them, and you know, he was uh, working for the Roman government. And so he said, where in the scriptures does it say that the Messiah or the Christ will be born? And they answered him, well, the book of Micah, says that he will be born in Bethlehem. So that was the additional information that the kings needed. And so they left the capital city of Jerusalem and Bethlehem was just a short distance away, a couple miles actually. So um, you recall that at night, the star that had alerted them to this in the first place reappeared and they were able to triangulate however they did as the astronomers of their day, and they made their way to Bethlehem. So now we're in Matthew chapter 2, verse 11, on coming to the house. And so you can see that months, maybe even up to almost a couple of years have passed since the birth in the stable. And we have now toddler Jesus, not newborn baby Jesus. It has taken a significant amount of time for these men, rich though they were, to make that difficult journey, probably by camels. And you've seen the creches, you know, the manger scenes, and you've got the wise men and the shepherds. They came to the house and they saw the child. Notice it doesn't say babe anymore. They saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshiped him. And what an interesting and incongruous scene this is. These men must have been very richly dressed, very important dignitaries. They probably had an entourage. You know they didn't come alone. They had to have had assistance. Uh, people that came to cook for them, people that came to set their tent up every night as they made the journey, people to fan them with a big leaf when they're hot, you know. (laughs) And here these important dignitaries are, and they see this humble family, not people of means. And when they see this little toddler, they fall down in front of him. 
and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. What strange gifts for a young child. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. I think this is a beautiful painting of their uh, encounter with Christ. And so let's have a look at those three treasures and see what their symbolic significance is. We'll begin with the first of those, gold. You know, gold is a gift for a king. You probably know that gold is one of the elements on the periodic table of elements, maybe from your high school chemistry. It's number 79. It's rare. It's precious. It resists corrosion. It's considered the king of metals, and it was considered a gift for a king. In fact, it's interesting, in 2 Samuel 12.30, when Jesus' ancestor, King David, defeated the Ammonites, he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold. That's several pounds. And in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. Then we also read in 1 Kings 10, verse 2, that when David had died and his son Solomon became king, that he was visited by the queen of Ethiopia. She arrived at Jerusalem with a very great caravan, and she came bringing gifts. She had camels carrying spices and precious stones, but it also says in verse 2 of 1 Kings 10 that she brought large quantities of gold. That's because gold is an appropriate gift for a king. And somehow then these wise men recognized as they worshipped this toddler that this was a great king. And we can remember the prophecy that was given to King David back in 2 Samuel 7. Look at three of the verses in that chapter. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you, the Lord said to David. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, here's the interesting part. You go down to verse 16, and it says, Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Now, either he was sadly mistaken, or this has come true through Christ, because Israel no longer has a monarchy and they've only recently been reestablished as a sovereign nation since 1948. And so their king, the descendant of David, the one who will have an eternal kingdom, is this Christ that those three wise men who made themselves have been kings understood. I like this painting of David from 1622 by Gerard von Honthorst. This is King David playing the harp. He was a Dutch painter that did this. But look at the scripture in Hebrews 1 verses 7 and 8. We just finished doing the book of Hebrews, you know, this past quarter. In verse 1, it's, or in chapter 1, it says, in speaking of the angels, he says, 
and the writer is going to quote from Psalms 104.4. He makes his angels spirits and his servants flames of fire. Remember, this chapter was saying that Jesus is better than the angels. And so they start out saying, yeah, angels are pretty great. Psalm 104.4 says they're spirits and flames of fire. But about the sun, he says, and now he's going to quote from Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. A scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. So this was a prophecy about the Messiah from Psalm 45. And the writer of the Hebrews, using this theme, Jesus is better than, in chapter 1, he says, Jesus is better than the angels. He starts out saying, yeah, angels are pretty great, very interesting. Spirits, celestial beings made by God. Oh, but the Messiah, he is the king, the eternal king. The Magi understood that, and that's why one of those three gifts was gold. This is an image of Christ the king that is in the stained glass window of a prominent church. You know, the last book in the Bible, Revelation, almost to the very end of it, chapter 19 of its 21 chapters, says, re referring to the uh, glorified Christ, and he has on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see in the Old Testament, and we see in the New, in both Hebrews and even the prophetic book, Revelation, that Jesus is a great king. The Magi knew this, and they brought gold to signify they understood that he is, was, and will be a deity. The second of the three gifts, then, was frankincense. Well, frankincense is tree resin, aromatic tree resin. This scraggly-looking tree here on the left is Boswellia sacra. It's very hardy. And when the tree is injured, then it will weep. It will weep a sap or a resin that dries into these so-called tears. They call them tears. And you can take this resin. These trees don't start producing this resin until they're 8 or 10 years old. But you can take this resin and burn it. And it makes this aromatic smoke. And they still have incense of sorts in some more formal churches, Catholic churches. Sometimes the priest will come down the aisle at the beginning of mass with incense, and you can see the smoke coming up from the incense. This frankincense was something that the priests used to burn in the temple. So let me show you what the law of Moses says. This is what the Lord told Moses on Mount Sinai. It's recorded in Exodus chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, take fragrant spices, gum resin, onica, and galbanum, and, and here we go, pure frankincense all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It's to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder and place it in front of the Ark of the Covenant law in the tent of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Now, he wasn't kidding when he said, most holy, look at this. Do not make 
any incense with this formula for yourselves, consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes incense like this to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from their people. And so he says, this is only for worship and it is to be handled by the priests. And when the priest goes into the Holy of Holies once a year to offer the sacrifice behind the curtain in the tent tabernacle, that was the portable temple that they had in the wilderness that lasted a few hundred years before Solomon's temple was built. You take this special blend that includes frankincense and you make smoke in the Holy of Holies place before you put the blood on the mercy seat between the two cherubim. So you can see in this picture here, an artist's conception of what that might have looked like. But it was the priests who handled that. So here we have the Magi understanding and symbolically alluding to the priesthood of Jesus. He wasn't just a king. He isn't just a king. He is also a priest. Yes, he's from the tribe of Judah, and the priests are from the tribe of Levi, but he is from the order of Melchizedek. You remember that mysterious priest that Abraham uh, gave an offering to in Genesis after the defeat uh, and the rescue of his nephew Lot. So we go back to that same book we were just looking over in these past three months, Hebrews chapter 4, the Jesus is better than book. And it says, therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Frankincense. Jesus is the priest. Gold, Jesus is the king. Frankincense, Jesus is the priest. Hebrews talks about this more when you move on from chapter 4 to chapter 7. Now, there have been many of those priests. He's talking about the Levitical priests that were descended from Aaron since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. We just talked about how his kingdom was going to be established forever. So he has a permanent kinghood. He has a permanent priesthood too. Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Glory, hallelujah. Gold because he's the king and frankincense because he's the priest. He's our priest. He goes between us and God because we can't approach God directly due to our sin. So then the third of the three gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Well, here we go again with another tree resin. It's the resin from a small thorny tree from the genus Comophora. And uh, there are two main varieties of it. One's called Haribol and one's called Bisabol. 
but they were present at Jesus' death and burial. And so myrrh represents that Jesus is not only the king and the priest, but he's the sacrifice. In Mark 15, 23, do you remember when Jesus was in agony on the cross that they put some vinegar on a sponge and they lifted it up to him and he wouldn't accept it? Well, in Mark 15, 23, we see that that vinegar or wine was mixed with myrrh. And the reason is because myrrh acts on the brain's opioid receptors the same way morphine does, and it gives it a pain-killing ability. But it was also associated with preparing a dead body for burial. So in John 19.39, we read, Nicodemus, who at first had come to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes weighing about 100 pounds. So these magi, either knowingly or unknowingly, brought this myrrh because it represented that Jesus' body would be the sacrifice for our sins. So he's king and he's priest and he's sacrifice. Always before, you know, the Levitical priests, they would come into the Holy of Holies to put the blood of bulls or goats on the mercy seat. But when Jesus, our high priest, comes to the holy place in heaven before God the Father to offer the sacrifice for us, what is in his hands? His own blood, his own self. Remember what he said right before he died at the Last Supper? This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant. So what he presents to God is himself. We see that again in Hebrews chapter 9. Jesus is better than the book we just came from. Just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. So, so beautiful. So we could just leave it there and say, don't forget the three gifts are king and priest and sacrifice. But it's so interesting that you can triangulate this and find verses that hook the two, each of the pairs of these together in every case in scripture. So Jesus' cardinal identity, king and priest and sacrifice, these are not his only identities. I mean, you can look in scripture and read that he's the son of God or that he's the lion of the tribe of Judah, various other things. But his three cardinal identities as they relate specifically to us and his work for us uh, can be triangulated in Scripture. So let me show you what I mean. King and priest and sacrifice, keep that in mind. Now, here's one Scripture that brings all three of those together. Back in that mysterious case where Abraham had had to get a bunch of his employees together, rich Abraham, whose nephew Lot had gone and lived near Sodom and been carried off captive. That was before Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed with fire. 
And on his way back from that victory, that military victory that Rich Abraham had with his own employees, he meets this mysterious priest named Melchizedek. And it says in Genesis 14, 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine, hmm, that sounds kind of like communion. Bread and wine, body and blood. He was priest of the Most High. Isn't it interesting that we have all three of those there, king and sacrifice and priest. And then we know we're on the right track when we reference that because you can go to Psalm 110 and then Hebrews 7, that book we just came from, that quotes Psalm 110 and read, you are a priest forever. This is speaking of Jesus after the order of Melchizedek. So here's this mysterious Old Testament Melchizedek presenting himself to Abraham, the progenitor of Jesus Christ, the founder of the Jewish nation. And he's presenting himself as a king and as a priest, and he's bringing bread and wine. Hmm. This is a picture, an artist's conception of that. So you see, here comes Abraham, and there is Melchizedek with those two elements. And there's another one. This has been uh, illustrated several times. All right, so that was one scripture that shows you all three. But now let's see if there's any scripture in this triangulation idea that ties together king and priest, just those two. And yes, there is. Let's go to Zechariah, one of the last books of the Old Testament, has some wonderful prophecies about Jesus. And here we are in... Uh, Chapter 6 of Zechariah, the word of the Lord came to me, take silver and gold from the exiles, Heldai, Tobijah, and Jediah, who have arrived from Babylon, and go the same day to the house of Josiah, son of Zephaniah. Take the silver and the gold and make a crown and set it on the head of the high priest, Joshua, son of Josedek. What? Why would you put a crown on a priest's head? Priests aren't kings. And isn't it interesting that that priest's name was Jesus, Joshua, Savior, a common name back then. You know, we sometimes say Yeshua, that's how. Hmm, take the silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the high priest's head and his name happens to be Savior? Tell him that this is what the Lord Almighty says, here is the man whose name is the branch. Hmm, that sounds like other Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah, where he would call the branch with a capital B. And he will branch out from his place and build the temple of the Lord. It is he who will build the temple of the Lord, and he will be clothed with majesty and will sit and rule on his throne, and he will be a priest on his throne. Well, which is it? Is he a priest or is he a king on a throne? Why is he wearing a crown? Why are they mixing these two up? King and priest were separate. Or, oh, I guess if we're talking about Christ, and this is a forward look to the Messiah, the Lord can show us that really he has both identities at the same time. And there will be harmony between the two. Isn't that beautiful? So here is an interesting Greek Orthodox icon that shows Jesus wearing priestly garments. But you look on his head and there's a crown. 
Okay, so now we see those two parts of the triangle have been, have come together. So now let's see if we can find any scriptures that tie together two of the other parts of the triangle, king and sacrifice. Hmm. Well, you can go to 2 Samuel 24, 25. David built an altar to the Lord and there sacrificed burnt offerings. Well, wait a minute. The king doesn't usually build an offer, altar and offer sacrifices. That's the job of the priest. Why do we have a king offering a sacrifice? Hmm. And then the Lord answered his prayer in behalf of the land and the plague on Israel was stopped. I don't know if you remembered the plague on Israel after the unauthorized census. But this kind of reminds me of Matthew 27, where we're at the crucifixion. And when they had crucified him, so here's the sacrifice hanging between heaven and earth. Jesus, they divided up his clothes, casting by lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. What do you know? So in the Old Testament, we have the progenitor of Jesus, a king offering a sacrifice. Then you come to the New Testament, and you have Christ on the cross, and he's the sacrifice. But what does it say on the cross? It doesn't say Jesus, the sacrifice for sin. It says the king of the Jews. Hmm. So we've tied those two together. You've seen the pictures that say I-N-R-I, haven't you? I for Jesus, because there is no J in Latin. I-E-S-U-S. -S. N for Nazarenus. And R for Rex. And I for Judeorum. So it means Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Einri, King and Sacrifice. Hmm. So let's look at this triangle one more time. We tied together priest and king and then king and sacrifice. I wonder if there are any scriptures that tie together priest and sacrifice. Well, yes, back to that same wonderful book we just finished. Hebrews, Jesus is better than, chapter 7. Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. You get it? Just like we were talking about before, the priest comes into the holy place before God the Father with the sacrifice for the sins of the people so the people can be acceptable to him. And what's in his arms but himself, his own body and blood. Wow. So this scripture ties together priest and him being the sacrifice for our sins. And that's not the only place. Go two chapters forward in Hebrews, but when Christ came as high priest, that's clear as crystal, of the good things that now already are, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that's not made with human hands, that is to say is not a part of creation. He didn't enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood 
You see how this is just echoing what we, we read two chapters ago? Thus obtaining eternal redemption. And so here we have one of my favorite illustrations of this, where Jesus, dressed in the clothes of the high priest in the holy place, in front of the real Ark of the Covenant, whatever symbolism that is for whatever there is in heaven, right there, right over the mercy seat where those two cherubim look down on that solid gold lid for that box where the blood goes. And that looks like the chalice, doesn't it? That he drank from when he said, this is the blood of the New Testament, the blood of the New Covenant, the New Agreement. And there he is offering them. And so if we were going to formulate a response for this, if we see these three kings' gifts, this gold for pre, this gold for king, and the frankincense for priest, and the myrrh for the sacrifice, then how does that change how I live my daily life? If I want to come to church for something practical, then I recognize that if he's the king, that means he's the boss and I should submit to him. If he's the priest, that means that when I approach God in prayer, I go through him in the name of Jesus. And if he's the sacrifice, I must accept that sacrifice for my sins, for the blood to cover them. And so bottom line, the three symbolic gifts of the Magi are a reminder of the three-part identity of Jesus Christ as it relates to our redemption. If this podcast has been a blessing to you, please pass it along. 